Time Capsule Podcast. This episode, we're talking 80s horror movies. Our special guest is Mike Treblecock, film composer, Juno Award winner, and Killjoy. As usual, your hosts are Child of the 80s and Dr. Retro. Cinema Time Capsule's mission is to curate and compile the best genre movies of the 80s for future generations to enjoy. We review the movies with help from our esteemed guests to decide collectively if they're as good as we remember them. The movies that are placed in the Cinema Time Capsule are chosen by you, the viewer. So head to the lobby and get yourself a treat. This episode, we are reviewing 80s horror movies. I am your host, Child of the 80s Jeff. Alongside me is my co-host, the doctor of all things retro, Joel. hey Joel, who is sitting beside you right now? I'm having a, I'm a not worthy moment, actually. Okay. Well, get into it. Yep. Well... We are fortunate to have as our special guest Mike Treblecock from the band The Killjoys, who've won Juno Awards, the hard-hitting alt-rock band. Mike is currently a film composer, songwriter, and producer with a ton of horror compositions under his belt and some horror gear on his body now, demonstrating he is a true fan. He's serious. Mm -hmm. Not just for today, either. (laughs) This is how he lives. He lives a scary life. life. This is not just a costume. (laughs) It's a way of life. (laughs) He's got a Michael Myers mask on right now, too. So. <laughs> that was going a little far. <laughs> anyway. Joel, I think you're, this is the part where you're supposed to ask oh, about... you always do it. I do? Yeah. Simon, can you cut this part? Absolutely, you can. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mike, tell us uh, a little bit about your kind of retro history. Tell us the year you were born, maybe like a favorite toy, like something you remember, like food, TV show, any music. Or films that you like from the favorite era? horror movie. Uh, well, I was born in 1965, so I kind of grew up a bit a bit in the 80s, mostly the 70s, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, uh, and I was born in Hamilton, uh, in the West End, sort of back to the West End now. So I've gone full circle, but. Mm. Uh, yeah, uh, near Westdale was where I was hanging out first. Uh, I think, you know, all my memories of all that time, it's all music related because I've been playing, I've been playing actually with the drummer from the Killjoy since we were little kids. So like I was maybe nine or 10 or something like that. That was the first time you picked up an instrument and decided it was going to be time to start jamming. Yeah, we, I didn't, I never actually learned how to play my instrument. Uh, I just started writing songs. So that's not usually the way you go about it, <laughs> but that's how I did it. Cause I thought it was too hard to learn. So right. I just thought, well, I'm just going to do it. Goof yeah. around on this thing and something will come out that, that I like. So, and you know, luckily we had, I had friends like, like Gene that, that he played drums and I played guitar. So we had sort of a band already with, with two guys. Sometimes we'd have other people join us but mm. so it's been us forever like playing wow. in garages and basements and what year and, would you uh, have started playing then it would have been about 74 okay so this has been a long track for you yeah yeah it's been a long life a singular focus <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's all i've ever done really all i've ever wanted to do and so uh you know, in my, you know, in the teens, early teens, I remember I used to go to coffee houses with my dad. He used to take me around to 
like open mics and and uh and play my songs that i have was still writing uh so uh you know just acoustic uh, open mic things and so i i just i i've been doing that for as long as i can remember hmm. did you ever play the day night tavern i lived Creek? right behind the day and night tavern never played it once i never played there no it's a travesty. That would have been awesome. Yeah, the Pines was uh, mm-hmm. across the st- yep. uh, the other street yep. from where we were. So, I used to listen to bands there all the time. Though I used to hang out by the open doorway mm-hmm. and just listen to live music because really? I was fascinated by it. So. so, our connection with you, which I don't know if you know, is we went to the same high school. Right. That is our claim to you. Yeah. <laughs> so I will sometimes. Yep. I've said to many people. <laughs> I went to the same high school as Mike Treblecock from the Killjoys, and that's all I've been able to say. But now I can say, actually, you have met you. I don't know why they haven't done it yet, but they should really change the name of that school to Mike Treblecock High School. (laughs) I've got a petition going right now. I didn't want to tell you. We've got several thousand votes, Mm -hmm. and it's probably going to happen. It's about time. So I just want to say one thing. I remember one of my favorite gigs of seeing you. I don't know if you remember this, but you closed out Salt yeah. Fleet High School in the gym. Hmm. How did they get you to do that? Uh, I sort of vaguely remember that. Uh, yeah, it happened. I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the front row yelling and screaming. Really? Yes. Um, was it just me or was it the band? It was the no, whole band. All of you were there. Oh. And it was the the final kind of year and we had a big reunion there yep and um i don't know how they got you to come out but you came sounds, out and you played the gym sounds very sad <laughs> <laughs> it was an amazing moment in my life so well, thank you for good. doing that that's no problem so i guess um joel wanted you to talk a little bit about one of your interesting gigs that you well, were talking if, mm. if you want no i can you, i can i had I mean, asked about what were what were clubs that were the best or worst playing in Hamilton? And then uh, you gave a, a couple interesting answers. Well, the one that I think you're referring to was uh, we played a clubhouse, a biker clubhouse mm-hmm. down on uh, Beach Boulevard. Yep. And uh, so, you know, we were pretty young. We were maybe 15, 16. I, I don't think it was Killjoys. It was another band. Uh, it might have been with... Uh, uh, D. Cerniel from Svengali. I think mm-hmm. he, he was maybe uh, involved in that band. Anyway, so we were we were setting up in uh, this biker clubhouse, and to test the mics, the sound guy, very nice, <laughs> nice fellow, he would uh, fart into the microphones. <laughs> the one that you had to use later. And we, and or... I, was, I was pissed off. I'm like, man, I have to sing into that. So you'd think I would learn. So like I did today to bring bring my yeah. microphone more often. Yeah. But anyway, so that was an interesting experience. And then, of course, the arrival gang came in and we had to get ushered out through the basement windows. <laughs> As you do. Yeah. So uh, now did your parents pick you up from this Malay? Because you were 15. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't think. Did they drop you off? Oh, hello, Mike. I'm just going to drop they, you off at the biker bar. <laughs> they They're might supportive. have, to be honest. They might have. Because we would have been uh, closer uh, so yeah, I think they they might have actually picked me up, but they 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 were used to situations like that mm. by that time. They knew they knew what I was doing. Uh, just recently, uh, there was a <clears throat> like I, I 
I was saying earlier that I did the music for the Ben Guy at uh, Comedy Club show. And just that, you know, I was about 20 at that time and hanging around this weird comedy club thing with all these, you know, uh, yeah, shady characters. They're not that shady, but... But and my mom watched a documentary on it, and she was like, I can't believe we let you <laughs> go and play in this place every every week. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but it's been one didn't. interesting time after another. I mean, if you didn't have the support of your parents, so like, who would have known like, what would have happened, right? Yeah, no, it was largely because of that support that I, uh, have, that I just continued. Uh, there was never really a question of... Uh, you know, maybe you should do something else. <laughs> it was just always, this is what I always did is, you know, so, uh, there was never a, it was never a conversation. So, um, so the band's pretty back, mm. the band is back together and you yep. got some dates coming up. Um, you know, there's nothing booked right now. Uh, we did, we did a few dates, just Ontario stuff. You recently did the horseshoe though, right? We did the horseshoe. We did, uh, Lee's palace. Um, Played a gig in Peterborough, Ottawa, um, Kitchener. Cool. So uh, that was sort of a mini little tour. And then so now we're on hiatus again. So we'll see you in 30 years. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the meantime, though, you made that transition from being a gigging rock and roller to music composition for movies. Mm-hmm. And you've started to compile a big list of specifically horror films, I believe, that mm-hmm. you're that you've been working on. Yeah, I thought, uh, you know, go with what you know sort of thing. That's why I chose that genre because I, the, I've i always loved horror movies for one thing. Uh, so I speak the language, right? And um, But, you know, I was doing music for media before the Killjoys as well because I did that comedy club show. Mm-hmm. I did a fishing show. and So that, that was my trajectory until it was interrupted by the Killjoys for, for 10 years or so. <laughs> So Thank really goodness that just... was beautiful. Hmm? That was a great time in my life to have the Killjoys playing. So, you know, that was a good hiatus for you to It's a good hiatus. It's a good, it was media. a good break. Yeah. So uh, now I'm just back to what I was hmm. sort of thinking I was going to do. Do uh, you before. find that more um, relaxing because you can go to bed at like, you know, 7.30 or 8 rather than gigging and <laughs> not starting yeah. till 11? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I mean, there's. I've still got. Uh, I write till late at night now, so so it's always there's always something. Uh, but uh, but but I do it from home. You know, I'm not uh, jumping around as much. A little bit when I'm at home in my home studio. But um, it is. I guess you could call it more relaxing in a way. It's more grounded, I think, because being on the road, especially in the 90s it was like being shot into space because you didn't really <laughs> have you weren't connected mm. like you are now like you've got your phone you're it's like you never i toured with simply saucer um a couple years ago in the states and we did a few tours like that and it was like i never left you know oh, yeah. my girlfriend would be like uh where's the salt shaker <laughs> and i'm like you know in minneapolis right uh it's on the third shelf in the uh you know, you didn't have to use MapQuest to uh, route to, you. Um, you could just you could call ahead. Hey, we're running behind to the venue, and they they hear right. from you. That's right. Yeah, you could uh, MapQuest. Yeah, and you've got the GPS now. Mm-hmm. 
um, except for we still manage to screw that up sometimes. We went to Montreal with Simply Saucer again, and we for some reason we had two GPSs going, oh, and they man. were kind of saying opposite things. <laughs> so somehow we ended up uh, in a suburb of Montreal. Uh, it said that we had r- arrived at our destination. <laughs> we were thinking it would look more like downtown any time now, but it never <laughs> did. We were in some suburb, you know, some nice, sunny, nice houses. Yep. We're like, this is not the venue <laughs> at all. So we had to uh, race to get to the venue right. after that. But anyway, we, it, it is nice to be more connected, I think. Mm-hmm. One last music question before we move into the show. Um, does anyone mosh anymore? At your shows, because we used to destroy ourselves. Uh, yeah, they, uh, a little bit. Yeah, there was some at the at a few of the shows. Yeah, yeah. There, there. It's a select. Few. I'm afraid to do it now. I stand way at the back with <laughs> earplugs in. Now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I look for the fire exits as well. So, <laughs> wow, I've man. changed a little bit over the years. <laughs> do, I have. Uh, do you remember the first album you bought as a kid? Either with your own money or you got your parents uh, to buy? uh, Mr. Speed by Kiss. Um, That was the first 45 that I bought. I forget what was on the other side. It might have been Hard Luck Woman, maybe. So that was from Rock and Roll Over, I guess. And that was the first one I remember. And then, you know, I haven't stopped buying vinyl since I got it at Sam the Record Man in Eastgate Square. Yes. So you you guys might know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We bought stuff there, too. (laughs) And do you remember the first horror movie that sort of captured you? I don't know. I um, Again, I've sort of been doing my whole life, my whole life. <laughs> True. Uh, my, the horror movies were, were, I was very young when I started watching horror movies. I mean, Godzilla mm-hmm. on Saturday afternoons. And I know one thing that made an impression on me was you used to be able to buy uh, rent uh, uh films out of the library yes but films on film mm-hmm. yeah and so i remember uh we had we were up at the cottage when i was very small and we rented um my parents rented uh, uh the beast with five fingers with hmm. peter Lorre. okay and so black and white very scary he was a piano player i think his i hand, love his eyes his hand came to get him you know mm. i forget how his hand got chopped off but anyway his hand was it doesn't matter how it got chopped off but the important part is it was come to get him. <laughs> so in your own that hands. That is terrifying. Yeah. So, so that made an impression. Hmm. But that, yeah, that's the first one that I really remember. Cool. Well, we're looking forward to digging in with you on these. And we will Me be too. right back, guys. Paging Dr. Marco. Dr. Marco to the podcast. Dr. Marco to the podcast. Stat. Now's the time on the Cinema Time Capsule podcast where we ask Dr. Marco. Hi everyone, this is Dr. Marco, a medical consultant for Cinema Time Capsule. This time calling in to tell you all about fly-human hybrids. Yes, Jeff Goldblum as in the fly movie. So is this feasible? No, absolutely not. Flies have something like uh, 12-ish chromosomes, and we have something like 46-ish chromosomes. It would never work, but if it did, and you should try, it would be weird. You would probably have some sort of a strange gestational period. Flies have eggs. 
Mammals have placentas. If you had a fly placenta, it would be probably pretty disgusting. You'd be inside of a fly flying around, and then you would be dropped down on a leaf through some sort of fly thing. I don't know what sort of reproductive organ they have. Probably a tube that you would come out of, kind of like, um, yeah, I don't know. It would be very weird and very gross, and probably you would be incubated by the environment and so you'd be a poor neglected child just like child of the 80s and maybe even the other guy that works with him um on this podcast but then you would come out with superpowers much like jeff goldblum who is really a marvel he probably has the um the brain of some sort of alien fly species inside of him and therefore was able to mate with a fly and somehow be his own child and then come out and star in an incredibly weird movie uh that is not possible but once again you should try take it from me you should try um you know alternatively you could also try to hybridize with some sort of a tree or maybe a possum or or some other animal that would also be weird but it would also be awesome if you came out on the other end with a giant furry tail or maybe a huge giant trunk with leaves on it and then you could grow flowers and stuff and uh and roots yeah in any case the fly is a pretty cool movie I don't think it would work to try and make a human-fly hybrid. We should try. Uh, And in summary, I think it would be pretty awesome to be born out of a flygina. Anyway, that's that's all I've got. My medical advice, as usual, is about as useful and trustworthy as this podcast is. And I wish you all the best. Stay safe, healthy, and happy. And I'll see you all next time. you can really your imagination can just kind of go anywhere Mm -hmm. Uh, so that's why uh, that's one reason I I like horror so much Hmm. I think Joel's more afraid of thinking about horror movies than actually seeing (laughs) I think that's my Uh, you're probably right you're probably right so let's get into what makes um, 80s horror movies unique in comparison from other decades and I know that I have a lot of talking points but do you guys want to jump in here at all like what's what's unique when you think about the 80s horror movies uh for me it's uh i, I love the uh, well i think it had the, the unique things about it are uh the color for one thing uh you know movies were you know technicolor very bright uh um, um you know neon in places and and uh so th- so it just it really keeps your attention when you're watching these, there's no real. I mean, there's some, but it's it's not super dark and uh, and and uh, moody. Some of them are. I'm, I'm general, generalizing, but they're really they for me. They really keep my attention because they're just like eye candy. A lot of them, um, like Creepshow, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think the soundtracks uh, being where they were in time, with synths sort of coming to the forefront. And so, you know, things like John Carpenter and, again, Creepshow John Harrison stuff and and uh, like electronics were really coming into their own. And, uh, and you know, the directors and studios were saving money. And, you know, they have one guy doing a soundtrack mm-hmm. instead of... It was very minimalist, uh, right? Minimalist instead of hiring an orchestra and, and uh, you know, what like they used to... They still did that at times. But um, a lot of the times you can get away with just... Uh, like a really cool uh, one synth soundtrack. So when you score a movie or when you think about the sound design, how do you 
go at it? Uh, you, I think every movie sort of has its own voice, its own uh, unique personality. So you've got to sort of find that first, um, and then, and then I do write some themes sometimes, uh, depending on what kind of movie it is. Some, you know, a lot of movies now, they, they there's a lot of drones going on and things like that, and, and sort of swooping mm-hmm. sort of in and out. And uh, but other movies that I do are very traditional and even though I haven't hired an orchestra yet but <laughs> it, you, I could um, if the budget was there but some of them I would write themes like uh, like they used to do and so every character you know, you know Star Wars for instance the characters mm. have their own themes right there's a love theme there's all this stuff so I'll write some themes and sort of figure out even if it's droney music the characters still have their own sort of sound their own personality mm. so I, I think that's Maybe my approach is uh, still thinking in terms of themes, even if it's uh, more of a drone soundtrack. What about a jump scare? Do you have, like, a, if you see a jump scare in a film, do you have something right away, or does it kind of creep up on you? How to put that in there? It depends on what the camera's doing. I, I'm always following the camera movement. Uh, so I'm, I'm basically... When I'm scoring a movie, I'm basically playing what's already there. I'm playing the movie. I can hear in my head hmm. what will be in that spot. Uh, as far as jump scares go, I try to keep it. You know, you know you, it would be easy to, to just do the same thing over and over again. But uh, like the Friday the Thirteenth kind of sound design. I forget the the composer, but you know when a jump scare is coming with that, right? Because he's ramping up. Yes. Sort of. Yeah, and sometimes you want to ramp ramp up. I mean, if it's a slow creeping thing, but if a cat just jumps out of a closet, you've got a different kind of jump scare, you know. So you've got to just sort of watch what the director sort of what his intention. Have is. you ever scared yourself? All the time. <laughs> <laughs> and I am, yeah. I know it's coming. I know it's coming. <laughs> All the time. That's awesome. And even for like a lot of the droney stuff, and I'm there in the dark, like oh, not by myself, like what you know. Really? So you're experiencing yeah. that. So I'm gonna have time. a heart attack one of these days, but. <laughs> It's worth it. Totally it's worth it. Last movie. <laughs> Joel, what do you, um, when you think of 80s horror movies, anything jump out at you? Even if you haven't seen a lot. I know. Well, the, uh, you noted the makeup, oh the gosh. practical effects. Oh. And, and they're on a, there's a, a large spectrum um, of from good to bad. And I mean, the bad ones often just bad ones add to it because they're, they're humorous. They become, can become humorous. Um, and I mean, that's, that was my only, my connection originally was, uh, Rick Baker did the makeup for Michael Jackson's thriller. Mm -hmm. That was like my favorite as a a little kid. And so I watched the making of Michael Jackson's thriller over and over and over again. That scared me. And, uh, the, and so seeing how he did the makeup was really cool. And there was one segment in there, uh, which because John Landis deli- uh, directed that too, that they showed a clip from American Werewolf in London. Mm-hmm. And my parents wrote on the cover, <laughs> fast forward to at 11 minutes. So I didn't know what that was from my whole childhood because I just wouldn't watch it because it wasn't allowed. So then I, until we watched it for this. <laughs> so the makeup always stood out to me. Um, and yeah, watching these movies too that, it was a ver- there was a variance of like this is really amazing and that is not amazing at all the the what the scares do you mean or the no the quality of 
the oh, make out of oh, okay. So Mike's wearing a Fangoria hat, and you were a big, avid collector of Fangoria magazine, right, Mike? Yes. And you still have all the back issues? I do, yeah. I don't have, you know, one to whatever sure. number, mm-hmm. but I've got, uh, I've got a, at least a box full of Fangoria. Do you have a favorite artist, makeup artist from the time that... Well, Savini, uh, probably, you know, because he did all, I mean, Romero's my favorite director of the, of the era or of any era. And uh, so, so Savini, I always enjoyed uh, following him. I've got his book. uh, So yeah, I was a big fan. And he's got an FX school now, actually, where you can actually go and learn to do the makeup Hmm. and stuff like that. So Savini's great. Uh, Rob Bottin, who did The Thing, we'll talk about. Um, There's just so many. It's it's the era of makeup artists. Screaming Mad George had some amazing stuff. Uh, uh, Sam Winston was another amazing artist. And they've all got unique styles, too. They've got their own. You can tell their effects when you look at them. You can tell which, which artist's. Uh, did it they've got mm. definitely have their stamp yeah um and again this is a an era when everything was done on screen it was all practical we didn't have a lot of uh cgi maybe we had some stop animation and things like that but mm. it was mostly all on camera so actors were reacting to things rather than blue screens and things like that um so i don't i don't know i just the the movies i have a huge list here i'm not going to drone on forever but I was intrigued that um, the 80s had a lot of uh, character-driven franchises. Right, yeah. But interested that neither of you picked a, uh, like, I mean, you only had two movies to pick, but that those You're ones, talking about, like, the the Jason, the Freddy, Michaels, the Freddies, yeah, that, the Chuckies. Yeah, that there were so many there of those. so many. But that those, I was just interested that. Neither of you picked a single one of those. Yeah. But why, why didn't you pick a... Um, Do you like, like those a, ones, I, or are they not of I interest? I can't say I'm a huge fan of, of like, um, some of those. I, I mean, I like them, though. Mm-hmm. But it's just, they don't grab me, right. uh, I guess, in the same way. Sure. I mean, the I was a Jason fan, and... I think Jason could take Freddy. I'm probably more of a fan now than I was. Yeah, I was they, uh, they're fun to go back to. Now. I have not yeah. seen a single one. Well, we're going to change that eventually. <laughs> you know that's going to happen. Uh, but I mean, like, there's like just tons of different genres, as you already said, Mike. Like, you didn't have to watch slashers. You could right. watch monsters, ghosts, aliens, mm-hmm. um, zombies. There's a ton of zombie films during that time. And one more thing, I just wanted to point out. It was, it was the era where that the genre writers and directors had just tons of creative license. Like you had John Carpenter, uh, Cronenberg, Craven, um, Hooper, Raimi, like the list goes on. Like these were really times for writers and, and directors um, to explore their creativity because I, I don't know if you have as much creativity anymore. I don't know if there's as much uh, license for that. I'm not a filmmaker. Well, so. in indie film, there's definitely mm-hmm. a lot of the ones I work on. Uh, they are pretty over the top in a great way. Uh, so there's still the creativity out there, whether it's getting studio support. Right. I'm not sure if it's the same. But, right. Um, I mean, that was the 80s were a time when Toby Hooper had those, that, that canon uh, trilogy with uh, uh, Life Force, Invaders from Mars, and Texas Chainsaw 2. Right? Yeah. 
uh, and the, just the fact that any studio gave so much money to to make those amazing, crazy films. Yeah, he could do whatever he wanted. It, it was beautiful, just beautiful. <laughs> so, and I don't know if we'll see something like that again, but well, we hope we're holding on. We're holding out for hope, folks. Yeah. Um, so, folks, we're going to move on to our specific. Uh, genre films that we each picked. I mean, we could go on about how many film, what, what films were in during the eighties, but there's just too many to list. We could be here all day, so we're going to get right into our discussion when we come back from the short break. Isn't this fun? Lovely stroll on the moors. Did you hear that? I heard that. What is it? You think it's a dog? Nice doggy. Good boy. What happened to them? Oh, a police report said they were attacked by an escaped lunatic. A wolf. My friend Jack was just here. <laughs> Told me that I will become a monster in two days. Your dead friend, Jack. Yes. Gotta believe me, David. Believe what? You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. Tomorrow night's the full moon. You're gonna change. A what? You'll become. I know. I know. A monster. A naked American man stole my balloon. What? What did I do last night? You don't remember? The last remaining werewolf must be destroyed. It's you, David. Run! Good Lord. Okay, welcome back, folks. Uh, Joel's just finishing a donut. Uh, usually we do eat on uh he's disgusting he's licking his fingers and stuff it's just dis- it's you can disgusting. probably hear that the, the smacking of uh, anyway i got i got the uh, vegan donuts from beachwood donuts in st Catharines. make Excellent. your way down there he's eating the coconut cream Mm-mm. okay so uh joel start us off all right we are beginning our discussion with jeff's selection 1981's american werewolf in london Okay, this is starring David Naughton, Griffin Dunn, Jenny Ogader. Uh, written by, we've done a few already, John Landis films. Written and directed by John Landis. Um, and the composer um, was Elmer Bernstein. And um, I don't know a lot about um, the composer, but the amazing job in this film. Two American college students are on a walking tour of Britain and are attacked by a werewolf. One is killed, the other is mauled. The werewolf is killed but reverts to its human form, and the local townspeople are unwilling to acknowledge its existence. The surviving student, David, begins to have nightmares of hunting on four feet at first, but then finds that his friend and other victims appear to him, demanding that he commit suicide to release them from their curse, being trapped between two worlds because of their unnatural deaths, and the movie follows David right to the bitter end. And we see some amazing transformation scenes. So wh- what did the uh, critics have to say about this one? Um, I'm just taking a look here. John Landis, 
must have entertained greater aspirations for his new movie, American Werewolf in London, than the dismaying results he <laughs> struck with. A wasted, clever title and a minor fiasco destined for an obscure niche in the sh- uh, scrap heap of horror movies. <laughs> Gary Arnold of the Washington Post, you are a fool. <laughs> Gary, what are you doing? Isn't he, like... Way off. I'm going to watch more movies, Gary. I tried to call him. But uh, he didn't return my phone call. So, Jeff, why did you choose this movie for our time capsule? Okay. Well, Joel, you didn't see a lot of horror movies back none, in the day. Almost none. Okay. So I didn't see any of these movies in theaters. Okay. I was young at the time. Um, they were rated R, so I couldn't get in. Um, horror was not enjoyed or encouraged in my house, so I would have to watch it co- covertly. Right. I remember I have two memories of horror. The first horror movie i saw was hammers uh dracula prince of darkness on tv mm-hmm. you, either of you guys watch horror uh hammer horror films nope. oh yeah yeah so joel no nope you've got to go back and see them they are like the quintessential launching point for a lot of these these films they're mm-hmm. beautiful really oh they, they are shot beautifully i could go yeah. on about those um but i remember watching it my dad was letting me watch it and um there's a scene where this guy's hung upside down and they slash his throat and he blood, blood lets into like these ashes of Dracula and my, my old man flipped out and he turned <laughs> off the TV. Which is crazy because Jeff saw some insane movies as a child. And then I think he said, let's watch Porky's instead. <laughs> and so in my house, Phew. it was okay to like watch like these sex comedies, but like horror was yeah. like, no. So, but I had a friend named Trevor and he was a horror movie person. And like I saw this, I saw American World probably six years old. <laughs> and <laughs> no, I'm serious. Was he the same age as you? I yeah, like we were like in grade two or three, and I think his parents rented it for us. Good grief! And I just remember watching it, and I don't know, Mike, if you have the same feeling when you're watching horror, especially when you're young. You kind of did the hand over the eyes thing, like looking through, and you know, turning away. But the problem was there's so much sound and things like that. Mm-hmm. Like it would bring me back. So I saw this film. Um, as a six-year-old, I had no knowledge of the wolf other than the Wolfman, um, but um, the combination of Landis and Baker just had me like hmm. hooked into horror at this point. And even though I didn't really want to watch it, I felt compelled to watch hmm. it. So this is the first film that threw me into the genre, and I, I don't think I slept. I don't think I've slept since. <laughs> so yeah. Mike, when did you, you know, see this? I think you know. I think I actually saw it in the theater. Oh man! And I think the scariest parts of American Werewolf in London are the nightmare scenes. Mm-hmm. Oh, just, <laughs> sorry to bring that back. Oh, I bet. But just they come out of the blue, you know, and you're not sure if it's a dream or if he's awake, and you know, all that stuff really freaked me out at the time. So, how old do you think you would have been when you saw it? Then it was 1982. Yeah, I would have been. Um, were you gigging at like biker bars? So you were gigging at biker bars, but this movie frightened you. <laughs> That's right. Well, I didn't know any better, so, luckily. So the nightmare scenes, and I want to get Joel's impression. I still, there's the one scene where he's in the woods and he's serenely laying in bed. Mm-hmm. And then he looks down at himself and then his eyes open and then the teeth and he's like got a blue face that 
that messed me up. Talk about jump scares. Yeah. Like I didn't, uh, uh, yeah, I had problems for, for months after that. <laughs> yeah. And then the whole weird sequence where he goes home and you think he's home with his family and then all these mm. Nazi monsters come in and they obliterate the family while they're watching the Muppet show. Right. Yeah. Like totally just Totally out stuff. of the blue. Yeah. Joel, what did you, what did you think, man? Yeah, the the makeup was really good. It was Rick Baker, so that had me intrigued. Um, and yeah, the, the story was okay. There are there parts where it just I thought it didn't connect as smoothly. Like the whole townspeople, they're acting all weird, and then they're out in the the, the moors. Like, yeah, in the moors and. And then they show up, shoot the werewolf, and then it, it, just the way that it brought it back and forth. But, um, yeah, the, there were plenty of scary parts. Did you find yourself um, scared at all as an, an older gentleman? No. If, oh, so, okay. So uh, you could handle it. Yeah. At this <laughs> point, yes. If I had seen it when okay. I was six, definitely not. I've, uh, okay. I would have I been terrified and... Um, yeah, now it was it was it was very campy too. Like now, watching it as an adult, um, that's my experience with lots of these movies. Is if I didn't see them as a kid, uh, the experience is just different as a forty-five-year-old. So now and I, it's also a comedy too. Yes, you know. Okay, so I did. As are a lot of these. Mm-hmm. A lot of people tout it as a comedy, and I don't think it's a comedy. I think there's like some funny moments in it, but I think I'm that six-year-old kid watching it. I'm like, sure, I can't find any humor in this i'm scared it, well it wouldn't have been yeah. funny to a six-year-old i think it would have been to the teenager 20 year old i think what made me laugh was uh the guy that was slowly rotting away mm. uh, <laughs> well, i think some, jack for some reason i thought that was hilarious huh. and i think him talking and everything I that, thought was that was super was well funny. done i was scared up until he became a full skeleton. Yeah, then he then he looked. And then I was like, oh, I was okay with it because I'm like, okay, I know this is special effects. <laughs> yeah. But at that point, when he's got like slashes and stuff, mm-hmm. I was like, I I was so scared of that part. Apparently, they cut out a part where he's he asked for a sandwich. He asked to eat part of a sandwich. Apparently, they cut out a part where the uh, piece of sandwich <laughs> oh, came out of amazing. his throat. Really, I don't know why they would have cut that out, but Simon, like, we can imagine it. Though. Did you see this film? Oh, Simon can't even talk right now. He's choking on a donut. He's, he's terrified. I'm good. Um, I haven't seen any of these, actually. Oh gosh. I may like have Joel. seen some you, of them. What? I don't remember. And I <laughs> will talk later, but oh, wow. I, I owe uh, Joel yeah. uh, a viewing really? of The Shining, Absolutely. and I'm going to do it. Um, I'm, I'm going to fulfill my promise. I'm just going to be late doing Mike, it. Mike, this is the podcast of, like, I've... I'm like the only person that's seen any of these films. Joel's never <laughs> seen any of them. Simon's never. I'm like, did that's we? That's not true. Did I've we come up at the same time? At least ones. Mike is here to kind of yeah. fill in the gaps, prop us up. Okay, so um, I the other part about this film that I really liked was it was filmed all in location. We had the the Moors in in England, which is you know famous for Hound of the Baskervilles. So you know John Landis really knows his stuff. And then you have all the filming in London. They go right through the underground. Mm-hmm. Like that I love, cool. I love that kind of. Yep. You don't see a lot of the um, on location filming anymore, right? So I really like seeing Piccadilly Circus in the eighties. Mm-hmm. Um, but the I don't know the the sound um, in this movie still really works for me. Whenever you hear that wolf howl, like how would you do that? That was a like, weird howl. Too, like how yeah. would you do that? Like as a as a sound. 
person. I, I, you know, it just it could just be a guy. The just kind of. I can't even. Do that. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird it's sound. It's a weird howl. <laughs> it's still. I think it's frightening the way that they constructed that howl, and, yeah. and I think it led to a lot of the scares because you don't see the wolf. It wasn't a mm-hmm. usual werewolf mm-hmm. howl, or you know, it wasn't a usual werewolf either. Mm-hmm. That, he wasn't standing up. He wasn't wearing clothes. The transformation scene in the living room was phenomenal. So, it, does it hold up? Oh yeah, that oh, looks, okay. That I thought that still looked. And I mean, we do have an affinity for the practical effects over right. computer, um, and I thought that looked really, really good. And the music too. Uh, there was a lot of there was Elmer Bernstein, but there was also uh, a lot of found you know you know mm-hmm. popular music, right? The, like Bad Moon Rising. Yep. And, the, and yeah, Blue Moon and things like yep. that that were uh, incorporated. Two as well. versions of Blue Moon. Yeah, we did a different one for yeah, the. I think there was three actually. Was there? Okay, yeah. I just remember the intro and, and outro. The end credits, I think, had the. Oh, okay, yep, had the version. So Joel, it did. So the the actual makeup did mm-hmm. kind of hold up. Yep, I thought so. Um, anything that didn't hold up for you though, overall, like did you just think it was stupid? Uh, it, <laughs> it just yeah, it didn't do it for me of like i uh i found at points i was just checking my phone uh oh my gosh because it was there that's your problem i know but like it was you shouldn't even reveal that you shouldn't reveal that on the podcast that is just i I was still watching but there were parts where it just sort of dragged watch it again and put our cell phones in the basket (laughs) you gotta edit that out because that just yeah there's no currency there now it was did what did you think guys of the the ending wolf where they reveal the entire thing like was that did it look cool to you still or did they yeah they did show the whole thing didn't they i know they were showed they show the front and then his feet and then they actually showed him walking yeah joel did you like that it's i ended up watching more after that so it slipped my mind I don't even think that, Joel watched it, guys. I, I think he just Wikipedia it. <laughs> AI, tell me what I should say. Um, so, yeah, I overall, I don't think this is going to make a lot of people's list. But the reason why I chose it is just it's firmly entrenched mm-hmm. in nostalgia for me. And it's the first time that the Academy Awards give a, an award for makeup, which mm-hmm. goes to Rick Baker. And interestingly, there was um, four werewolf movies in 1981. That's... There Surprising. Was. Can you name them? The Howling might have been Howling one. was one. Wolfen was another. Oh, yeah. And then there was one by um, Cohen. Uh, I was a teenage werewolf. So there was hmm. four in total. And the other piece of trivia is um, um, Baker was supposed to do The Howling, but he had already agreed to do it for Landis. So. Which, werewolf Mania. Yeah. Which then... Michael Jackson loved this movie so much that that's what got him to do yeah. Thriller with Landis and Baker. So that kind of that's your tie-in right yeah, there. Yeah, that's th- that was more of my interest. Okay. And what you know, he was a wolf. What were the zombies doing? They were just happened to be around. Yeah, there's just whole like because he turned into a wolf. He should have turned into a zombie. He was yeah, actually, that, that, by the way, a cat. It was like uh, Baker made him into. He a, was a cat. It was a it was a cat. Mm. Um, look, a were cat. Mm-hmm. Where was like a were cat? 
So that was... <laughs> no, that is interesting because, yeah, the, why were it's the just other the supernatural people... guys taking over the, right. the whole but town. Deciding, oh, this will be a werewolf, but not them. No, they, the it magic... It could have been a dancing werewolf. Mm-hmm. Werewolves. <laughs> I think that's the proper way to say it. <laughs> so, guys, we're moving on. Okay, we're moving on to... Um, actually, we're moving back to 1980. We're going to talk about the film The Shining. Yes, this was starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Danny Lloyd, Scatman Crothers, and I had Tony Burton, though he, I learned, is only in the uh, U.S. version. Um, Stephen King wrote the novel, which then Stanley Kubrick and Diane Jan- Johnson adapted for screenplay. Uh, Kubrick directed, multiple producers, um, and some composers, uh, in particular, Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind, they wrote the main theme and scored the whole film, apparently, but Kubrick only used some of what they did. And then there was a, uh, a Polish uh, composer, Krzysztof Penderecki, because he did uh, a lot of... Uh, you know your stuff. Uh, thanks, Internet. Okay, give so, us a synopsis. This story is... Uh, <clears throat> so. Haunted by a persistent writer's block, aspiring author and recovering alcoholic Jack Torrance drags his wife Wendy and their son Danny to Overlook Hotel in snow-capped Colorado after taking the job as an off-season caretaker. As the hotel shuts down for the season, the manager gives Jack a grand tour and the facility's chef, the aging Mr. Holleran, has a chat with Danny about a rare psychic gift called The Shining making sure to warn him about the hotel's abandoned rooms, especially room 237. However, instead of overcoming the dismal creative rut, Jack starts losing his mind, trapped in an unforgiving environment of seemingly endless snowstorms and a gargantuan silent prison riddled with strange occurrences and eerie visions. Now the incessant incessant voices inside Jack's head demand sacrifice. Is Jack capable of murder? I think he is. <laughs> so you find out. Wait, hey, what do the critics say? Because well, Kubrick is garbage, right? Well, as a he's just a garbage filmmaker. Uh, yeah, is that true? He's, he's got very little. Okay, what happened out there? Um, what do they say? So when I was having to select films, this was like on a lot of lists of as first. Um, yeah, so, a lot, like that's uh, the two movies you picked. Yep, the were thing up there. and. The Shining are like usually one and two right. on people's lists. So Scatman Crothers won Best Supporting Actor. Kubrick and the composer Bella Bartok uh, were nominated for Saturn Awards, which I'm guessing you guys know of like sci-fi They're horror. Like sci-fi, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, Kubrick and Shelley Duvall were also nominated for Razzies, which what? go to the worst movies. Uh, though Duvall's was rescinded in 2022 after the abuse she suffered from Kubrick was finally recognized. So car- critics largely panned it at the time. Uh, Kevin Thomas of the LA Times wrote, There are moments so visually stunning only a Kubrick could pull them off. Yet the film is too grandiose to be the jolter that horror pictures are expected to be. Both those expecting significance from Kubrick and those merely looking for a good scare may be equally disappointed. So, yeah, I picked this because I didn't feel like I knew a lot of horror movies. There were a few on the list that then I was familiar with, and my second selection was 
uh, one of those. So um, you chose the to so go I in looked, the cinema time I just capsule went, for because of the list. Yeah. Mostly? So okay. I just went looking because Jeff refused to pick a movie oh, for yeah. me. So then uh, I went on list to what see. What is a horror movie? <laughs> 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 and uh, and so th- since this was on the top of a lot of lists. And then when I threw it out, and obviously I'd heard of it and see lots of that picture of uh, Nicholson's face coming through the door is everywhere in pop culture. Um, certainly I've seen the Simpsons episodes that uh, parried, parodied it. Um, and then Simon said uh, he hadn't seen it either. So I was like, okay, well, then Surprise. we'll pick this. The guy that worked at Jumbo Video <laughs> didn't even see this. Yeah. so He's too yeah. busy playing saxophone. <laughs> Okay, Mike, have you seen this film at least? Oh, yeah. Okay, thank you. Many, many times. Yeah, at least more than once. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just saw it at the Playhouse, actually. Oh, yeah? Yeah, recently. Oh, I remember when. It uh, was great. So, Joel, did you enjoy the film or... Oh, he guys, he just he just took a deep breath. Uh, you can't see <laughs> I can't, this. I can't stop. He Start. took a deep breath and he kind of <laughs> nodded. So that means... That he's going to say something horrible. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to start Red again. Red rum. Red rum. Red rum. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Yeah, I did I did like it. Uh, I can see the critique of, that I read afterwards of where uh, Stephen King didn't like it because it changed things. And there were elements of it that I thought were inconsistent. But you can see uh, the story unfold in terms of the deterioration of sanity and uh, see how it affects everyone. Has anyone read the Stephen King novel? Mm-hmm. Have you read it, Mike? I have not how read it. How did it compare? I'm a King fan. Like, do you see them as one and the same, or do you view them as like the book, and then there's a movie, and they're two different things? Um, I think they're two different things. Yeah. Um, I mean, Kubrick took some liberties, I guess, with it, but I mean, also it's two hours as opposed yeah, to the. It's a for big, sure. It's a big book, so you mm-hmm. can include a lot more detail i think the one criticism i mean obviously stephen king knows what he's talking about but he said that he thought jack nicholson seemed too unhinged at mm-hmm. the very beginning yep so he didn't have the character arc that he had envisioned so i can i could see that though i've also heard stephen king pens it more of a traditional ghost story and a haunting mm. and then this movie kind of and this is the horrifying thing to me is it it's more of a psychological where it's a movie yeah. about madness yes and for me I don't like those type of horror movies because they are things that can happen to people. Right. And so this is why it's such a horrifying movie to me now, mm-hmm. where, say, American World London would be like, oh, you know. What, like, you don't think that could really happen? Well, I, I don't I don't have any evidence now, Joel, so I'm not <laughs> as afraid. Yeah. Um, but the the fact that You're people, not American, so you won't have to worry about And I've never about, been to London. Yeah. But like this kind of thing, you know, you do see things like this happening. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it horrifies me still. That did seem like that's where I did maybe not follow the the gifting part, like the shining, the shining. or the shinning, as uh, the, the groundskeeper Simpsons. Willie would say. Um, that, uh, that those two things seemed like not as consistent throughout. And honestly, I can appreciate that. Shelley Duvall was treated horribly, but her acting was pretty bad. I, did, I, I did thought I she thought was she was good. on point, man. The the one scene where she's like, sort of running away, it was just it 
it was almost it was comical when I watched it. Uh, it looked just silly to me, but I was scared for her. The descent into no, madness part was uh, was very convincing. Um, what do you guys think of? I don't know if you can think back to the beginning, but the start of the movie, beautifully shot, and yeah. then the the sound score comes in, mm-hmm. and I just think it's so ominous the way that film starts out and it just starts to feel that my neck starts to that was the main theme that was written for Mm -hmm. the movie and that is deus irae yes uh an old like a i think it's like a gregorian chant Mm -hmm. era Mm -hmm. thing that they use a lot those four notes they use that a lot to to, Mm. in movies everywhere to uh sort of signify that doom you know sort of Mm. thing well, I, did, I had no idea. So this is, not, it's more of like a recycled kind of element then. Yeah, yeah. So. Well, it's something that subconsciously, it just puts that thought in our head mm. somehow. So the fact that you mentioned that kind of now it comes together. Maybe that's why they, you know, people talk about Kubrick being so, you know, amazing to like get into our heads right away. Like mm-hmm. I was, I watched this with my daughter. Did you? And what did she think? Ah, uh, she was she likes it. Um, she's she's a teenager. She was like, we were watching it, and you know, she was starting to feel the the tension already. And this is like two minutes into the film, right? Right? Did so, you know that the uh, that opening the opening shots from the helicopter that they didn't use all the material? So then the what wasn't used was actually used in Blade Runner. Oh no way! Oh. Yeah, hmm, that's pretty amazing. I know, again, another note on the score. Um, Kubrick, I, I think it's not um, it's not unique to him, but he would use a temp score. And I did this with 2001, too. Alex North had written a whole score. And he ended up going just going with his temp score, which is just the, an art, the director will put music in just so that, you know, this just to see how it looks up against the picture and how it, how it makes the picture move and wh- what kind of music you need in this certain spot, right? So and he would sometimes he would just go with his temp score. Who would the make end. the temp score? Like someone totally different? It's it's uh, it's really it's it's existing music. So he was taking you know he would take like uh, Ligeti and and uh, Penderecki and and put that up against the picture and then because it's existing composers that the music already was written. So uh, so they would just license that those particular pieces. Oh, okay. Instead so of using an original score, that's why as we're, you're going through the credits, Joel, I guess there were so many different. Mm. Yeah, uh, Mike, I'm learning so much today from you. Good. This Good. is like I'm, uh, this is like a <laughs> a lesson on how this is done. Has that ever happened to you? Um, Where look, someone has bumped not, you? They, out? I haven't been bumped, but I have, uh, you know, written things that are like something, but not that thing. You know, so something like this should go here. You know, so you'd have to sort of do your own version of hmm. of, uh, of of this style of. of do you music. ever have to kind of fight, like not fight, but like push directors for your your vision? No, I I will make make a case, mm-hmm. lamely, because it's their <laughs> yeah, it's their it's thing, their right? <laughs> so uh, I want them to be to have their vision realized. Right. That's the most important thing. Uh, so, but I, I'll, like I said, I'll make a case for something if I think maybe they should, you know, yeah. push it in this direction a little bit more. But in the end, it's it's really up to them. You're probably always right, though. I want to say of that course. to the listeners. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
No, in fact, uh, often I'll get notes back and, you know, I'll, I'll sort of give my impression and, and we'll go back and forth. And by the end, you know, they're usually they're right. They've, they've got this in their mm. head, you know, how they want it to be perceived. And uh, so it's always better after notes and going back and forth with the director. So a director like Kubrick would be, I, I assume, pretty controlling. And I think that's what the overarching response has been over the years but he did say that you know he did want to make the world's greatest horror movie and i think he did legitimize horror as a mainstream viewing opportunity for people Mm -hmm. because i don't know how you know how many people were flocking to horror movies right but all of a sudden like this is 1980 there's academy awards and then off we go Mm -hmm. and then the decade and it really is art too like it's beautiful film yeah yeah Looks beautiful, sounds beautiful. The music, the you know. Apparently, I, I do, do like Jack Nicholson's performance too. He, yeah, but I think the couple notes uh, that th- one of the scenes is like the most takes in film history. Really? One of I think one of the uh, scenes with Duval and the scene with him breaking down the door. Um, they had to. He was a volunteer firefighter. Who Nichols, was Nicholson? <laughs> so awesome. they built wow. like a flimsy door, thinking he's going to need the help, and he destroyed it. <laughs> so then they made it. They had to build up another door, but he did do it. Uh, it took thirty days to film that scene, and he destroyed sixty doors in order to get it. <laughs> There's uh, some beautiful stuff in that little scene, like follow, following the axe. Like mm-hmm. what a brilliant move! Yeah, you know. And the uh, in the trailer, so uh, I guess the. MPAA didn't like it when it when it showed the the elevator with the blood mm. and so they weren't going to allow it and then he persuaded them by lying to them and saying oh no that's not blood that's rusty water and yeah. then they were like oh okay, okay then. Rusty it, water. they were fine <laughs> Which that was interesting that was the first time I saw, I saw blood like that though that was just insanity yeah. and then horror movies like Evil Dead then went with that where they would just spray as much blood as possible mm-hmm. but I Cooper There's something about that slow-mo I think I held my breath for that whole scene it's too. unbelievable just, still just the way it happens and I don't know if it's complete silence when that happens but I couldn't hear anything because mm-hmm. I was completely yeah. uh, bre- you know took Taken my breath away yeah. yeah I still don't understand the story I've seen it many times and there's just like so many it, Kubrick goes off in so many different directions and you're left to put it all yeah. together, and I'm asking all these questions all the time, like why are these people, why are these certain people here? And there's apparently a lot of theories about, like, is there an overarching theme? So one was that uh, the moon landing was fake, and Kubrick directed it, yeah. and that there's all these little symbols within Clues. the movie, like the two room two thirty seven, was it? There's a whole documentary on. Is there? Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. There's so, a whole documentary. And then, like, how many things are about uh, the genocide of Native Americans, yeah. and which is interesting that and that yeah that people that would. was um, there was like flour that um, was created. Um, it was a reference to Native Americans, mm-hmm. and it was. They say that Kubrick always meant to put something in its place. So then there's a whole documentary. Oh, it's really? called 237. Okay. And it's a bunch of people dissecting all that stuff. I mean, yeah, maybe. I read a great Twitter thread about 
The Shining and yep. many, many instances of Jack Nicholson looking at the camera. And, you know, he's a, you know, he's been doing this a while. So this, he knows better than to look at the camera, but they're just these small glances. And they're, they were just trying to figure out why hmm. it was happening over and over again, where Jack Nicholson is looking at the camera. And it's almost like it feels, you're, it's subliminal. You don't notice him looking at the camera, but it, it's because it almost feels like a threat. Hmm. Like he's like you are next kind of thing. Oh really? man! Ha- now, if I go and re- well, I will rewatch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm gonna have to pick up on that a little bit more. And there's another spot where he's walking down a hall and it's full of mirrors. There's you know, it's not a hall of mirrors. It's it's a mirror here, then a, mm-hmm. down a bit, then another mirror. And every time he goes by a mirror, he like flips out. Each oh time gosh, he goes by the that. mirror. And so, yeah, that's really interesting, too. So there's all these little details yeah. that uh, you wouldn't pick up yeah, yeah. the first I, time. And I read uh, similar in a Twitter thread about it that um, when he's at the right, at the table writing and there's furniture behind him, but then when they show him from a different angle, there's nothing there. Yeah. And then when Danny's on the carpet playing with his toys, um, when they f- flip around, the carpet... Um, design is facing in a different direction and they said that he the director did that to always keep yeah subtly your brain being unsettled oh man because it was changing yeah. in ways like you said that you wouldn't you wouldn't be you paying attention right to away. the carpet you're looking at the actor and what's going on but, but little things like that which is fascinating one thing i found there's a little bit of hole in kubrick's genius is during the may scene um mm-hmm. it's cold but there is no condensation and that is a flip between the thing, which mm-hmm. is also in the cold, and you can see the condensation. Yep. But as they're running through the maze, there's no condensation. No breath. There's, there's no, no yeah. There's no vapor. Mm-hmm. And that was like, obviously, he forgot about it. Like mm-hmm. he's not that much of a genius that he'd be like, I'm going to take away yeah, their yeah. breath to keep people. Never, never know. Yeah, <laughs> you never know with Kubrick, but yep. people. I um, think though, as Canadians, we can always tell. When it's fake <laughs> snow and when it's like soap True. flakes being put, yeah. poured onto a car. For our, our American <laughs> listeners, it's June and there's snow outside, so yep. it's very yeah, cold. This igloo is uh, yeah. getting chilly. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I'll, I'll turn up the heat. Um, is this, <laughs> oh, I guess, <laughs> is this Jack easily. Nicholson's greatest role, do you think? Or is that too, hmm. too much to say? I think it could be. I love the Witches of Eastwick too. Oh, he's as far so as good his in that performances. Too. Yeah. Anyway, he's hmm. I don't know. Possibly. The the movie overall, Joel, I think I think it stands the test of time. This is your yep. first time seeing it. Yep. Were you disappointed? I I thought there'd be more constant tension, but there were breaks, which is also nice because uh, otherwise it'd be draining, but um, but overall, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was good. Uh, I, I liked it. And yeah, it's one I definitely, there's so much ha- going on that yeah. I think going back to it, then take more, uh, especially yeah, read, whenever you read about stuff like, oh, I didn't notice that. And then now you'll notice that thing, but then something else is happening. And I didn't see that the first time because I was just trying to figure out what's going on here. So, are you secure with your choice then? Are you feeling good about oh, it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, okay. and I thank all those people that made internet lists with uh, the best movies, and I just picked the first one. Folks, Joel approves of your list, <laughs> yep. of the first list that yes. he read. We don't know what that is, but congratulations, you have influenced person. us. Okay, we will be right back with Mike's 
choice. Because I have to go to the washroom. Okay. Coming soon. Jolting tales of horror. Creep show. From the author of Carrie, The Shining, and Cujo. And the creator of Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. You'll scream at ghastly ghouls. Cringe at weird kids. And shiver at the doings of evil doctors. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. Creep show will grab you, grow on you, and give you the creeps. No, this is going to be an entirely new experience. Creep show, the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Okay, we're moving on to our third film. This was chosen by Mike. This is Creepshow, rated R from 1982. Take it away, Mike. Creepshow, it's one of my favorites, actually, ever. So, uh, And I love, uh, it started, you know, I've been a horror fan since I was a kid, but this one sort of rejuvenated the the horror fandom in me, I think. Um, So... Uh, Creep Show starring Hal Holbrook, uh, Adrian Barbeau, Leslie Nielsen, E.G. Marshall. Uh, he's from Christmas Vacation. Yeah, Is he's that? in Christmas Vacation. Oh, I didn't know that. He was the father. Uh, Ed Harris, Ted Danson, Stephen King, Tom Atkins, and Joe King, Stephen King's yes. son. Hmm. Uh, written by Stephen King, uh, directed by George Romero, produced by Donald Rubenstein, I think. Composed by John Harrison and Michelle Debucci. Uh, yeah, she did the choir stuff in the main okay. theme. Um, the synopsis for Creepshow. Creepshow is a horror anthology franchise that originated with a 1982 film directed by George A. Romero and written by Stephen King. That is a weird sentence. <laughs> the movie pays homage, homage to the horror comics of the 50s, particularly those published by... EC Comics, uh, who later became Mad Magazine, Hmm. uh, William Gaines. Uh, The original Creepshow film consists of five separate stories, each with its own unique horror theme. The stories are framed within a comic book style narrative with an eerie host known as the Creep guiding guiding the audience through the tales. Some of the notable segments include Father's Day, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, and Something to Tide You Over. Uh, Joel, what did the critics say about this one? They loved it. Well, Roger Ebert... He loves everything. Yeah. Said, what they've done here is to recapture not only the look and the storylines of old horror comics, but also also the peculiar feeling of poetic justice that permeated their pages. That's pretty good. Okay. He's positive about it. He can be quite negative, that, that fellow. So, Mike, you said this kind of launched 
you're like relaunched it, but like you know, really pushed forward the idea that you love horror. So what yeah. was why did you choose this movie for the Cinema Time Capsule? Uh, again, I, you know, in general, Romero's my favorite uh, director, and so um, he had done you know Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead before this, uh, Martin, uh, great movies, great director, and um, this one. I think it's its comic book style that really has stuck with me, the the color of it, um, the 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 justice in every story, the mm-hmm. sort of uh, you know the the bad guy always gets his comeuppance, which mm. I love those I love those stories, and I don't I think I knew about EC Comics, but I really started getting into them after seeing this. So because it, I don't uh, think they were published. I think they stopped being published by the '60s at that point. Yeah. And I think I knew about them as well, but I had never actually seen one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that anthology and Tales from the Crypt—they had a film before this in the '70s, and I think it was um, a British version of it. Yeah, mm. uh, did Amicus? I think the studio Amicus I think Studio you're did right. that, and I think they you're also right did it. Vault of Horror as well. That's right. Uh, so there was a couple of movies like this before, but this one they wrote their own versions they, these mm. aren't uh, uh, um, adapted from any original uh, any existing stories these are all original Stephen King stories but in the style of EC mm-hmm. Comics and the filming is in the style of EC Comics as well um, you know you can almost see you know which EC artist uh, some of those camera angles the, mm-hmm. you know the weird angles yep. and, and colors and, and frames you can almost see which artist they're sort of emulating as, hmm. or what he's thinking of. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. I think it's just that sort of blend of, of film and comic book that really hooked me, I think. Yeah, uh, I, lo- the, I loved this it one. as a kid. Yeah. Joel, what did you think of... Uh, I'm assuming you've never seen this movie. Never saw it. Did you even know about it? Um, I would have known the name... Uh, and certainly, you know, when we were kids growing up, Tales from the Crypt was a TV show. That so was that, in the 90s. Yeah, 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 that was the HBO. Yeah, yeah. That was a great um, show, too. So, yeah, no, had not seen it. But I was saying to Mike before uh, we started recording that I was surprised how much I liked it for the reasons that he highlighted. So you enjoyed it? I did. It's fun, right? Yes. It was lighthearted. Uh, the, visually, it's phenomenal. Um Everything, the colors, the unusual camera angles. Um, yeah, the, I liked that there were multiple stories. So you, nothing, they didn't have to tie everything together. You could do, you know, 20 minutes and tell a, a, essentially a short mm-hmm. story. And that kept your interest. And um, yeah, I thought, and then seeing there were lots of famous faces from the 80s and including... A, I rec- I knew it was Stephen King right away, and he did an awesome job. I thought he did he awesome. He was so as well. good. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. Jordy. Yeah. Right? That was a great one. Uh, so, yeah, I liked it. Um, does it. So you think it holds up then? I thought kind so, yeah. Yeah. Because I would say if you put that out now, it was of a, a very high quality. Did you guys have a favorite um, story in it? I really like Father's Day. I think that's a great one. What the guy comes out of the yeah, I just love grave. That, that story. Um, and you know, it's not it's not 
not a huge storyline or anything mm-hmm, like yeah. that, but I just love uh, uh, the makeup. That is John Amplis, by the way, that uh, comes back out of the grave. It's not the original guy that oh, went okay. into the grave. All right. Hmm. John Amplis comes out of the grave. Okay. Uh, which is kind of cool. Um, he was the lead in Martin before this. Um, he was the kid in Martin? Yeah. He was Martin? Yeah. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Because yeah, Romero kind of does that, right? He's got his few people that he likes to use over and over again. Okay, I didn't yeah. know that. That's cool. Yeah. And he does casting on some of his older movies, too. He's the casting oh, director. That's a piece so. of trivia. Yeah. What did you think of it, Jeff, now watching it? Uh, well, I mean, I think I've seen it like a hundred times. Okay. I think I saw it already once this year already. So I've watched it at least <laughs> twice this year. Um, usually around Halloween, I'll watch it. Because so, I find I love, I love like, you said this is like a campy horror and that's i think that's my wheelhouse for horror i'm not a huge i don't love the psychological stuff like the shining although i do enjoy it but like something like this where you can enjoy seeing the makeup Mm -hmm. and you can see actors having fun and you have like i mean the two heavy hitters of the horror world you've got the best horror writer Mm -hmm. of all time i think and you know one of the best directors of all time just having fun Mm -hmm. right simon uh well Mike, you've met Romero, right? A couple times. Yeah. couple times. Yeah. Maybe yeah. You wanna so you're work? like best friends. You're holding, Share some stuff you're holding <laughs> out on us. What is going on here? I was lucky enough to do the music for the, the live play version of Night of the Living Dead. What? So Night of the Living Dead Live. And George was a producer. And oh so was um, John Russo and Russ Steiner. We're all producers. Wow. Uh, along with... Uh, Phil Pattison and uh, Chris Harrison. So, um, yeah, he was there often. So I sort of I sat in front of him. I talked to him a bit. I, you know, I I never bothered him for an uh, for an <laughs> autograph or anything. But in fact, he did say when one after one of the shows, uh, he thought I was sort of trying to emulate. He used a lot of music from this something called the Capitol. Uh, What's what's it called? High Q Library. So this this library of music. They were records that he would put on, and you know they would manipulate it with space echo and things like that. But this is for Night of the Living Dead, and uh, so I was sort of emulating that. And he thought that we had got music from the High Q Library again. So I did Hmm. a good job of emulating. I I fooled. I I, I fooled the master. Yeah. What year was that, Mike? This was about 10 years ago, almost exactly. Because he's no longer ago. with us. No, no. Um, word on the street is he's a really gracious um, and big-hearted person. Very nice guy, yeah. That's what everyone Yeah, and he feels like... Um, I did see him at, uh, at a horror convention after that, and we talked about the, you know, what, you know, what we had done before and everything. He asked me what the guys were doing now. And I, I was sort of taken aback, like, are you actually talking to me like a... human <laughs> <laughs> colleague. Like I'm an actual person? Hmm. It, it kind of freaked wow. me out a little bit. So, That's yeah, it pretty was, amazing. It was, a, it was a great experience. And I'm really lucky to have been able to do that. I'm lucky just to talk to you about that experience. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's huge for me here. The, um, I love the way that the, it's set up with Tom Atkins, who is a John Carpenter go-to, and Joe Hill, who's now a comic book artist in his own right. Mm-hmm. He's now, he did uh, Lock and Key. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's awesome 
in this movie as the little kid when he gets the voodoo doll out and he mm. starts poking he's got at that, it. He's got the devil in his eyes. He looks sure. like his dad, right? <laughs> yeah. And I just love all those different um, transition scenes where mm-hmm. the, the creep, what's it, what do they call? They called it a certain name. It, uh, Tom Savini called it. Raul. Raul. Yeah. Um, so Tom Savini is all over this film as well, yeah. which is just, it's just like a kid in a candy store for, for horror fans. So yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is a this is one that I I also love, Mike. And now Joel, I'm impressed that you. How many times you check your phone during this film? <laughs> oh well, since there were, I could stop with each one. Uh, oh yeah, each story. Short, so nice short stories. Because yeah, I did watch it in two sittings. So like then, I, but I was could, able to right? pause and then like because I knew oh this is a new story I, I got to go do something else and come back to it. Did it you is. have a favorite? Um, yeah, story the Jordy Verrill one was probably my favorite. Just the the acting, I really liked Stephen King, but then the special effects and just that idea of the the grass taking over and then him turning over completely was yeah really was, neat and cool. and visually it's very vibrant. So and I the, really like that shooting his head off. That yeah. looked good. Too. Yeah, yeah. Like that. How much time do you think went into that set? Like just the way it creeped in yep. and just again, it's not. CGI like mm-hmm. you could do CGI and maybe I don't know how fast you can do that but faster than what they did for sure Simon did you see this movie ever no you didn't see any of these right no, Jumbo I, honestly I, I can't remember <laughs> if I've seen this one or Tales from the Crypt but Tales from the Crypt is like 70s so there's yeah. a number two creep show which is yeah. not uh, Stephen King or Romero I, I, like I know it. I've seen one it's, of those at some point King. Still Stephen King? I just recently didn't get it a ton of time to watch movies. So I was busy editing podcasts. Uh, There's a few in the reason. can right now. There's so, always yeah. excuses. Um, I, well, I've got the mic though. Interesting that uh, who is the comic book artist that did Lock and Key? Um, it's Joe Hill. Joe Hill. So Lock and Key was adapted to a Netflix series. That's right. And some of the scenes of that Netflix series are filmed at the playoffs. I think you've right. told us that. Yeah, I've mentioned podcast. that before. I've on a podcast. Oh. Yeah. Big on fan of the playoffs. This podcast. Yes. This podcast yeah. So, and there's some other places in Hamilton that it's been filmed, but definitely one of the big scenes, I think, in season two is in uh, is in, in the playoffs. So. Cool. We go. also have another mm-hmm. connection to Creepshow. Um, and I, I'm kicking myself because I at home... I have um, creep show comic books for you guys, mm. and I just left them on my table. Oh, great story! Sorry, yeah, great story. <laughs> um, so they rebooted. Mike, creep I also show. had five hundred dollars, but I left it in my bank. Oh, so sorry, you won't get that. that I, hey, I brought the donuts. I forgot the comics. They're there for you guys on my next time around. But a friend, so they just they just released yeah. the creep show comic. Yep. And one of our friends uh, who went to Selfie with us is um, he did the cover. Art. He did the cover. Art. Or really? the creep show. Yeah, it looks wow. awesome. So, yeah. yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of connections here with you know how creep show just continues and it's become this this thing from you know the 50s yep. and then resurged in the 80s and now there's a whole creep show TV show and comic line. So mm-hmm. it's standing the test of time. And I think people like the idea of campy anthologies, right? Because mm-hmm. you can get you don't have to take it too seriously. You don't have to go Kubrick on it and. And, and if you didn't like, from 800 angles. and I could see this be with being five vignettes, five stories. If you didn't like one, you just, you just wait for the next wait one. the next one. Like yeah. Yeah. the the yeah. bug one was, you know, the ending one was 
uh, interesting too. Sort of that. I love uh, when they come out of the mouth, though. Yeah, yeah. yeah there were like that's yeah. insane. But could, that's real. Yeah, and I could see people not being interested in that or that one being yeah. particularly scary and something else they just think oh that one was silly but there's all there seemed to be something for everybody in there my favorite was the tide one um when mm. uh leslie yeah. nielsen yeah because like Danson. i mean leslie nielsen for me is airplane he was good and naked gun yeah, yeah. and he was time. frightening man in <laughs> the first time i saw him like that ever oh yeah. my gosh i was just like this guy's got some chops because yeah. like I didn't there was no slapstick there. Still probably had his fart machine. <laughs> <laughs> he always he always brought that on to like uh, like David Letterman yeah, and stuff, right? right? He's like the microphone guy that would check do your sound checks for you. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> so anyway, guys, that's a more sanitary version. <laughs> yeah. Anything more to say about Creepshow as we move on to our next film? I want to say they lost a bunch of those cockroaches, apparently. I heard the, that. In the warehouse that they were I heard in. that. So they they're the... still in Pittsburgh somewhere. There's some Madagascar <laughs> hissing cockroaches oh, God, wandering man. around. I couldn't do that job, man. <laughs> they don't creep me out that much. Come on. You could get thousands of cockroaches and be like, here, let's do this. Yeah, I don't know. Some of the houses I've been in Hamilton, pretty gross. So yeah, bugs don't bother me that much. Well, there's no bugs in this studio, Joel. So. No, no, I've done a good job. You, you have. All right, we're moving on now. What would you do if you accidentally discovered the house next door was occupied by something not human? Something horrifying. Something unspeakably evil. No one believes you. Nightmare. Not your mom. They did kill a girl over there. Not your girlfriend. Charlie, is this some sort of a trick to get me back? Not even the police. Look, I know it's crazy. I know that, but look, Lieutenant! It knows that you know. You'll do anything to protect yourself. But it will do anything to protect its secret. of your life thanks for listening everybody this is the end of the first part of our review of our selections of horror movies with mike so thanks for joining us mike thanks for having me and uh we'll look forward to you in part two which is appropriate for horror movies because there's always sequels right yeah the podcasting so we will whoa we will see you at the movies This has been the Cinema Time Capsule Podcast. For more information about Cinema Time Capsule, please email us at cinematimecapsule at gmail.com. This podcast was produced by Simon Wielden. The theme song was performed by Bruce Turney and Simon Wielden. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>